Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John O'Leary is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here today joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests. It's a humble brag, but it's true. Joining me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. Yes, you will hear absolutely profound and unforgettable, inspiring stories. But more importantly, you will take away real ideas to apply in your own life. My friends, my goal is to have guests on this show that will inspire you to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can do, be, achieve, and impact even more through your life. Or maybe more simply said, so that you can live inspired. Today, we have on our show a Pulitzer-nominated author of 25 books, nine of which are national bestsellers. His books are nonfiction. Most are biographical in nature, and wow, are are the subjects of his stories shining examples of living inspired. His examples include that of Walter Payton. He's one of the most prolific running backs in the history of the NFL, but he wanted his book to not be about football. Instead, about leaving a legacy, more specifically, about being an Oregon donor from John Wooden the head coach of the UCLA men's basketball team when they won 10 national championships in a 12-year period. A man who many consider the greatest coach of all time. I I would love to, uh, you know, again, I don't know that there's a particular question I would love to. I just loved being in his presence. I mean, I'll never forget. I I mean, I I, I one day looked at him. I never knew. He was 98, 99, you know, when he died. 99 when I last saw him. And so he's 98. And about a year before he died, and I, I wasn't sure if it was the last time I'd see him. And I got up and I looked at him and I said, you know, Coach, every time I leave you, I feel like I'm a better man than when I arrived. Mm. And now, you know, most people you say that to you say that to me or you. Most of us would say, oh, shucks, thank you. That's that's probably undeserved, but thank you. John Wooden just looked at me and he said, Don, I hope you make that your standard. <laughs> he wanted me to make other people leave me feeling better than when they arrived, and I thought, "Wow, how to how to how to how to reverse that and 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 put this really amazing, you know, uh, curse on me, right?" Yeah, thanks a lot, <laughs> Coach. Right, way to go. But I, you know what, I love it. I'm I'm all for it. From our time together, Don will share about the lessons he's learned as a journalist interviewing some of the greatest leaders in American sports and in modern history, as an author business owner, son of a preacher, husband, and father of two, you are going to hear amazing examples of individuals living inspired through Don's library of books that he's written and subsequently the friends that he's made. Today's episode will be an awesome reminder of what a life inspired looks like and why it's worthy of pursuing. Are you ready, my friends? It's my honor to introduce you to Don Yeager. Don Yeager, my friend, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. 
John, thank you so much. What an honor to be here. Oh, man, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And Don, you currently reside in Tallahassee, Florida. Tell us what life is like for you in Florida these days. Well, it is. Uh, we got hit by a hurricane a few weeks back, so, uh, you know, it was a little touch and go there for a while. We lost power for several days, and uh, but... You know, if that's the uh, if that's the worst thing that happens to us, we're in really good shape. <laughs> right. Well, man, when you're not battling the winds and the water, the rising water, tell me what you're doing professionally, and then uh, back into it by telling me first what you have going on personally. Yeah, well, personally, I have uh, two small children. I have I'm a late in life dad. I became a dad at 45 years old, and uh, today I have an eight year old son and a seven year old daughter. And my wife and I um, have. Uh, I, you know, I'm just blessed. I, I think if I had, I, I probably would have loved to have been a, a father earlier in mm. life, but I probably would have screwed it up. So I'm, I'm honored to, to be in this place now in my life where I get the opportunity to impact the lives of these two young ones, and they're just they 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 make me laugh and cry every day, which is awesome. Yeah, it's pretty awesome if your heart and eyes are open to it that things show up exactly when they are intended to. Maybe not when we want them to but the way they're supposed to. So what are the kids' names? Uh, son's name is Donald William Yeager III. Uh, he's known as Will in our house. And, uh, and then Madeline, Madeline uh, who we call Maddie, is, uh, uh, is our daughter. And uh, yeah, they, they are a mile a minute, and, and uh, it's just they're third grade and second grade, and it's, I can't even fathom how fast it's gone. Right. Everybody tells me it gets even faster as they get older, and I can't even imagine. But... Um, we had a we had a powerful summer this summer where I, I largely I had long long chunks of the summer that we took off just to to hang and and uh, spend time as a family which was wonderful. So when you're not with those two little ones and your bride, Don, you're uh, you're traveling, writing, working. You have a successful business outside of being an author and a speaker. Explain to me a little bit uh, of what of what you do professionally. It's a lot on your plate. <laughs> so yeah, I I do uh, write one book a year. And uh, I've written. Uh, I mean, but who doesn't really, Don? So everybody kind of puts one out a year. That's right, man. And then, well, except for you know some real high performers, you know, like Janet Ivanovich, people like that, who <laughs> do multiples at one time. Um, I just do one a year. Uh, but no, I, I've, I've written twenty. My twenty-fifth book came out this summer. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And uh, so I do uh, that. I have, and so I have a team that actually helps me in the writing side of my life, full-time professionals who work for me, uh, who are in the research and writing world, help me build what I'm doing every day. Um, I, I own a, a small public relations firm uh, that by and large works in the sports world. Um, I do. I own a political consulting firm. I love politics. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm active there. And then, I, uh, then as you mentioned, I, I do... Um, in the last couple of years, I've, I did 80 speeches a year, which was way too many. So this year we cut it back to 60. Um, and we do an ongoing series of webinars with companies on the development of their leadership and their teams. And so, um, yeah, it's a few things going on. It's pretty pretty exciting. Never dull. You know, so uh, I'm a writer and a speaker and have this show done, and I, I feel like I'm juggling a million pieces right now. You mentioned those three pieces. In addition to the other aspects of your work, how, how are you effectively balancing not only this huge workload, but also two young kids and a busy wife? It's a, um, you know, it's a never-ending challenge. One, one of the things that, uh, when I mentioned that I did 80, I was doing 80 speeches a year, um, one of the things that came from that, frankly, uh, was that 
you know, my wife and I had a, had a real heart to heart, and and uh, and a couple of years ago, and she said, you know, I just it, it's unmanageable for mm-hmm. her. You know, forget me and the travel and all that. It was unmanageable as a family uh, for me to be gone that many that many times. And so we made a, you know a couple of a couple of agreements. One of which is that I would never be gone more than three nights in a calendar week. And um, so if I've got uh, you know this very week, I actually I began the week and on, on Monday morning I got up at 5:35 on a 5:35 flight to get to San Antonio for a speech at noon, and um, you know spoke the next morning in Orlando, drove home so that I could have dinner with the family. Uh, I live in Tallahassee, about mm-hmm. four hours from Orlando, and then jumped on a plane at 5:35 the next morning to fly to Chicago, and then spoke Chicago and and and, and St. Louis, actually right outside of St. Louis, uh, last night, and uh, got on a, a 6 a.m. flight out of St. Louis this morning, and and got home. So you just what I've learned is how to manage the early morning flights, yes. the late night flights, whatever it takes to be home as often as possible, and. Um, you know, I, my children and I talk about it a lot. It's, you know, obviously we'd all love to have that that family life in which I was home every night, and you know, at five o'clock I can shut down my office and never think about work in the evenings, and that's just that's not our environment. And I just need my children to know that I'm never, I'm never gone a single day in which I don't have to be. You know, I'm not. Right. Um, I'm, and, and as long as they know that, and we talk about that, I, I think they feel the the they feel my how much being home means to me and that's um and it and i think it means more to them when i am you know a lot of times uh people in audiences will ask me don john how do you how do you keep balance in your life and what i respond to them and i'm assuming this is how you would probably respond as well is i i don't believe in balance i think it's more important to have flow which means to set your priorities first and then when you are on the road or at work or riding or speaking to be fully there but when you're at home to turn off the phone to shut the typewriter whatever it is you're cranking out your best work on and to be fully present with those two little babies and your bride is is that generally how you you keep your mind absolutely it's really funny i i so my wife and i have been married now 10 years and um uh when we first started dating whatever it was 11 and a half years ago um uh, we're out, and, and at the time, you know, I'm just, I'm really important, right? I, I mean, I, I work for Sports Illustrated. My life is so big, right? I mean, I'm yes. big. Um, at least I, I believe that, right, in my mind. <laughs> and and we're, at, we're at dinner on a date, and my phone rings, and I answered it during the date. Hmm. And, uh, and and she gave me this look, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't quite understand what we had done. And she said, you know, if you ever do that again, I don't know that I'll ever go out with you again. <laughs> And she made it really clear that, you know, if you want to be here, be here. Right. And uh, there can almost be no one that can call that could be so important you should pick it up right there. So it is. It's true. Now I'll be laying on the couch with the kids. We're watching, uh, you know, Teen Titans go, and uh, and, and the phone goes off in the other room, and I, I don't even flinch anymore. I, you know, I don't even, it's like, that's okay. They're they're in bed. That's right. 45, I can go check whatever it is that I did that I missed. and. Um, so yes, I've had to learn that, frankly, but it's been, it's been one of the great gifts uh, that my wife and family have given me. Well, you've received that gift from your wife, and yet she uh, she wasn't the one who raised you. And I, I want to take several steps back in your life, even before marriage, before dating, before Sports Illustrated, all, all the way back to the beginning. You're a, you're a Hawaii kid from birth, is that correct? 
I'm a, I'm a legitimate 808 kid. Exactly. All right, man. I'm the 808 area kid, absolutely. How, how did that come about? Uh, my uh, my parents, my dad was a Methodist preacher, and uh, uh, my mom, my, the two of them were, my dad's church was in Hawaii when I was born. I was born in Hilo on the big island of Hawaii, and then we moved to uh, uh, the main island of Oahu, and, uh, and and we lived in a little town called Moana Loa until I was 11. Mm. And uh, and then at uh, at eleven, he he we moved as a family to Okinawa, Japan, where we lived in Japan for two years. Um, and then by the time I'm thirteen, and I have a younger sister at the time who's twelve, and he realized that neither my sister nor I had ever stepped foot in the continental United States. And so he uh, he looked for a transfer, and we ended up in Indianapolis, Indiana. So. Hawaii, Japan, Indianapolis, kind of not the yes. not the traditional trajectory of most people, but um, but uh, yeah, I show up and go to high school and college in Indiana, and it was uh, it was a wonderful, you know. Again, I I look at my kids today, and uh, in this summer when we were in uh, uh, we were in Turks and Caicos, and we realized that when we looked we went through our son our son's passport, he's he's eight years old, and he's been in twenty two countries. <laughs> And I think, you know, that's the way life should be, right? Mm. Life should be an experience of, and travel is such a great educator. And I think it was one of my parents, one of the great gifts they gave me. You know, you you mentioned your father was a minister, Don, and, and uh, my understanding is when you are a child to a minister, you will either be attracted mightily toward whatever the faith is or repulsed mightily by it. And I'm not trying to put you on the hot seat, but the hot seat is moving your way right now. Uh, what is it like having a father who's a minister as you're growing up? Um, well, you know, a lot of the, uh, with, without without question, I mean, the, the um, my faith was formed there, and uh, and you know, I, like a lot of kids, I, I probably, I, I certainly stepped away for a while. I uh, had to have moments in life that brought me back, uh, but but growing up as the son of a preacher, I was. I was everything that you, when you think of bad, you know, preacher's kids and yes. stupid things to do things that embarrass their parents, I was that kid. So um, my mom used to tell the story about I, I did get, I got arrested when I was 16 years old um, with the other pastor's son. The two of us were arrested um, uh, for selling hubcaps that we had stolen. Oh my gosh. Uh, but we stole them uh, at the Billy Graham crusade while our parents were inside preaching we were well out done. in the parking garage stealing parking stealing hubcaps. So we were, I mean, they were good hubcaps. They were really nice, and um, and we and we sold them at a good price. So it was, it was it was straight up commerce. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, yeah. We got a well, police officer pulled up behind us, and we ended up spending a night in jail. And it was um, so anyway. Yes, I I I, you know, I I grew to to uh, to recognize and appreciate my faith early, but I did not, uh, but I did. I did not get a chance to. Uh, I, I didn't always show it. Well, you know, I think eventually, what faith, whatever the thing is, must become yours. It, it can't be your parents passed to right. you. It's got to be owned and embraced fully by you. And so sometimes you, you you drive off the road, you steal some hubcaps, and then you figure it out later on in life. You're, you're a, a prolific and successful writer. Were you always interested in writing? I had uh, an experience. Literally, I, I moved um, when we moved from Japan to Indiana. I had uh, I, I'd spent most of my life Hawaii and Japan, growing up around military families, mm-hmm. and so uh, I show up in high school in Indianapolis and 
and I registered for classes as a freshman, and I signed up for ROTC because I thought it was, it was a perfect place. Yeah, I, mean, I would probably get a lot out of it, and um, and and I appreciated the military lifestyle. And the night before my freshman year classes, the counselor called and said that not enough kids had signed up, hmm. and so they canceled ROTC, but they, they put me on the student newspaper. Hmm. And uh, so it was a complete accident that I grew to appreciate, grew to understand that I could enjoy writing uh, as I do. And, um, and, and, you know, I would think that's probably true of most people who, you know, very few of us truly find it by, it's, often it's by some accident that allows us to realize our passion. Some authors refer to it almost being like a, a painful uh, task of, of sitting in front of a blank piece of paper or a blank monitor with that thing blinking at you saying there's nothing yet down and it's up to you to figure it out. What, what, what allows you to move through writer's block, whether it's in the local paper or eventually Sports Illustrated or the 25 books or the nine bestsellers to really push through and, and create something that's beautiful? In reverse order, I mean, from the book side, I, I so the very first time I, I sat down to write a book, um, it was 25 years ago, and I literally I'll never forget. I mean, I, I had I had bought a computer that was, you know, I was working for a newspaper, and I wasn't making much money, but I, and I didn't want to use the the newspaper's computer to write my books. I was I bought my own, and I set it up in a little room in my apartment, and I, I went in there every night for 30 days, and I never wrote a word because I was so intimidated mm. by what. I didn't want to write the wrong first word. Mm-hmm. It was really what, what I came to understand. And um, you know, today I, I think the answer for me is that I'm I'm a master um, I'm a I'm a master uh, outline builder. Yes, that's what I would tell you is my greatest strength as a writer is that I I imagine the arc of a book, or the arc of a story, and then I go through and I craft out what every chapter should look like as an outline, and in each outline. Uh, I'll actually write the first paragraph and last paragraph of every chapter so that I know how they're going to flow from mm-hmm. one to the next. And once you do that, uh, what I've discovered is that I never find myself in a place of writer's block because it doesn't matter what I wake up today wanting to write. Uh, if I wake up today inspired to tell a story that I know is really in Chapter 7, uh, it doesn't matter because I know what's going to be in Chapter 7. I can write there without having written Chapter 6. I can, you know... I. My outlines are so good, they allow me to write any day, anywhere, uh, as long as I feel inspired to tell a particular story. So uh, outlining became the one thing that changed the, the, uh, the trajectory for me there. Don, when you went to Ball State, did you expect to graduate uh, with some kind of degree around writing? Were you assuming that later on in life you would move full-time into journalism? Yeah, journalism was my degree program, along with history. Um, I, although I, I thought you might stop that sentence when when you went to Ball State, did you expect to graduate? Yeah, why don't we start there? I think there it's was, appropriate because a lot of people that wondered whether I might graduate. The folks at the Billy Graham tent uh, event were not expecting you to graduate, as the hubcaps sat in the back of your car. That's true. Exactly. The uh, uh, the, the folks at the, uh, the, the the county jail. Yeah. <laughs> so you did expect to write, and and tell me about your first job. Yeah, I started. Um, I had I had a really amazing. Um, one of the things that happened in college is I I realized that you know, as in most career choices, uh, journalism is a degree is worthless as a piece of paper if you haven't really practiced the uh, pra- if you haven't practiced the profession while you've got the chance to be there. Right. And so I worked at every. I, at one stage, I was working at, at four different newspapers at the same time, 
along with working at the student newspaper in, at, in, in the university. And I uh, was writing for everybody and every, anybody. If I if they would if you'd publish my stuff, I'd write for you. And uh, it just gave me great experience. But I had um, as a junior, I wrote a, a story, a series of stories. And by the way, Don, there's such a lesson there, and just whatever your passion is, to, to chase it passionately with everything you got. I mean, one's not enough. You were working in five different places at one time. Yeah, I just because I loved I loved doing it, but I also knew that if I didn't do it a lot. There are a lot of people out there that had degrees in my profession that weren't employed or employable. And so I thought, you know what, I I didn't want to go and make college a a four-year hangout. I wanted to make it a place where every day I was developing something um, in myself. And so journalism was the thing I wanted to do. And if I wanted to do it, I wanted to do it a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my grades suffered. I mean, I was not a great student. Uh, But I had an experience while I was there at Ball State where I wrote, several stories from the student newspaper uh, that led to a grand jury investigation of the university president, who ultimately was forced to resign um, and uh, over financial misdeeds that, 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 that I found as a young, as a young writer. Right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and as a result, I'm nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, 20 years old. It's mm-hmm. crazy. And, uh, um, and I had job offers to leave school, and I almost did. I, had, you know, I, I, I argued like any NBA player, right? I came to college to, so that I could play at the next level. Yes. Uh, it doesn't matter if I get a degree or not. Uh, but I had uh, an editor of a newspaper in Fort Wayne, Indiana, who came down and sat down with me, and he said, you know, my guess is I'll never be able to hire you uh, because you'll get job offers at bigger papers than mine. But I think you should graduate, and if you stay in college for your senior year, I'll pay for it hmm. if you'll work for me on the weekends. Just come up and work for me on the weekends. And, uh, and he paid for my senior year of school, and I stayed in school and I graduated, which um, I'm so glad I did. But you know, again, it was a great lesson that you know that, that I, I was like most young people, always in a hurry. And here was this one guy who said, "You know what? I think you should slow down, and I'm going to help you do it." Don, you uh, this Hawaii kid into Indiana. Eventually, you're going to be seated behind the desks at, you know, you name dropped this earlier, so let's come back to it, Sports Illustrated. And not just Sports Illustrated, but when Sports Illustrated was at the absolute pinnacle of what they were doing professionally, you're on board now. How, how does this kid from Ball State end up at Sports Illustrated? Well, I had the good fortune that um, I had a couple of books come out that were really successful while I was still a newspaper guy. And... Um, and then I was, uh, and then I had a chance to work on a third book that ended up being my first bestseller, and it was uh, a, a critical look at Notre Dame football mm-hmm. and Lou Holtz. It's called Under the Tarnished Dome, and my co-author on the book, and it just happened that, that we were partnered together because we both shared the same agent, literary agent. My co-author was a guy named Doug Looney who worked for Sports Illustrated, and as a result, he started introducing me to people there. And I started doing a little freelance work for them, and there only there are only thirty full time writers at the time at Sports Illustrated at that senior writer level, and um, uh, and, uh, and and after a couple of years they offered me one of those slots, which was pretty crazy because uh, I didn't I didn't really think I belonged, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is kind of a that's probably true of most of my career. I'm not right. sure I really belonged in most of where I was, uh, but but they gave me this chance, and uh, and it was. 
was game-changing for me. I was there nearly 12 years, and um, uh, and and you know, and then I I just I loved it. But then they offered a buyout, an opportunity for those of us who had been there 10 years or more to to leave, and it was a uh, it was it was well timed for me uh, to make a career path change and start doing more speaking and more book writing. And uh, so eight years ago, I did that. I took the buyout and began this third third act of my life, I guess, third act of my career. So I, I've read many of your books. I think you uh, not only tackle phenomenal subject matter, I think that's that's key. I mean, you, you write about beautiful things, but you also do it in a profoundly beautiful manner. So I, if with your permission, I want to call out three of my uh, favorite characters that I think you've ever written about. And I, Walter Payton and the book that you wrote about him, this is called Never Die Easy. How were you introduced to Walter, and uh, why would he choose you near the end of his life to be the one who really tells the story not only of his death, but more importantly of his life? Well, Walter had actually, he and I would met several times over the course of earlier stages of my writing at Sports Illustrated and other things. And, um, and, uh, uh, and anyway, he... He had. There was a series, a series of happenstances. I, I was, I was actually invited to be on Oprah uh, because of a story I did for Sports Illustrated. And and um, by the way, listeners, is anyone else picking up that that this man loves to name drop? I mean, between Walter and Sports Illustrated, Oprah now just got dropped. Don Yeager is a name dropper. I'm, I'm just going to say that aloud right now. Call it out. All right. So I was on this daytime. <laughs> right. Show. It's called Doctor Phil, man. Just move on. <laughs> No, uh, so I was on Oprah, and as it happened, uh, Walter had made a decision a couple of weeks earlier. He had discovered a couple of, a couple of weeks earlier that he uh, was terminal, mm. that the disease that he had was gonna w- would ultimately kill him. And he he made a decision to write a book. He started interviewing some writers. He didn't click with any of them, and he saw me on Oprah. Mm. And he picked up the phone and called my house. And um, uh, and um, he shared with me that he wanted to see if I would be interested in helping him tell his story. And obviously, he's the greatest of all time. He was my hero. Yes. And I wanted to be Walter Payton. And uh, as anybody in my age group who played football would love to do. And and um, and when I, I flew up there, and he shared with me that he was, I did not know from the phone call that he um, knew that, that he did not have much time to live. He shared that with me when we were face-to-face. And he said, you know, all I want to do is write a book that matters. I don't want to write a book about football. I want to, I want, I especially want to talk about, about, uh, I, I, I really want to talk about organ donation. I want people to, when they're done reading this book, to go out and sign their donor cards. And, uh, and it was powerful. I, I was like, oh, you know, Walter, I want to be your teammate. And he, he allowed me to do that. And I spent 10 weeks with him before he died. And, um, it was, uh, it was 10 of the most, amazing weeks of my life. What what were a couple of the things you learned about Walter? And the question that's going to be coming next is what were a couple of the things you learned about yourself? Well, I, I think the thing I learned about Walter was that as great a football player, and again, I, I always admired him for his on-the-field skill, for his you know, I mean, here's a guy who played 13 years in the NFL and missed one game in 13 years. And Don, I realize now, some of our listeners may have no clue who Walter Payton is. Who's, who's Walter Payton? Let's take it back guy. there. Greatest running back of all time. Played for the Chicago Bears. And 
uh, for many years held the rushing record in the NFL. Um, and uh, but he is a just an extraordinary was an extraordinary football player. You know, first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, you know, Super Bowl MVP, uh, Super Bowl champion, MVP of the league. He was everything you would want in in a in a player and a teammate. But I think the thing that I enjoyed, that I learned more about Walter was, uh, you know, how much he loved um, and how much how much he felt for children. Mm. You know, that was the thing that, you know, here's a guy that, um, you know, the number of people I've I've met over the years who have told me when they knew that I had a relationship with Walter, you know, that they were sitting in an airport. Right. And they may have been just staring because it was Walter Payton. And they were trying to explain to their son or daughter who that person was. And next thing they know, they look up and there's Walter right in front of them, you know, on his knee talking to their child because, you know, he didn't want them, he wanted them to to kind of feel comfortable, you know, no matter what somebody was saying about him to realize he was, he was real. Um, And that's the thing I think Walter struggled with was sometimes people thought he was untouchable and and he wanted to be touchable. Mm. Um, And so I think... If there was anything I learned from him, it was that that it does not matter um, how high we how high we float, right? How incredible our lives might seem. Um, there's so many things uh, under uh, over which we have no control, and, and that can shut those things. That can, that can change the direction really quickly if we don't. And we have to we have to be. You used the word earlier, present, right? We have to be present everywhere, every every day, because nothing. Walter said to me, you know, tomorrow's promised to no one, mm. and I thought that's a pretty powerful lesson from a man I thought was indestructible. You know that that amazing book, "Never Die Easy," uh, is what I wanted to bring up first. That a man who was cut away from life too early in life, I think. Forty-six. Yeah, in the prime, physically and in every other area uh, area of his life. Uh, another book that you wrote, uh, really on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, about a man who had a vibrant and extraordinarily long life, is called A Game Plan for Life with legendary coach John Wooden. T- t- for those of us who don't know who John Wooden is, why is he a legendary coach? Tell us a little bit about him. John Wooden was the, uh, was the head men's basketball coach at UCLA, when they won 10 national championships in a 12-year window. They won seven championships in a row. Now, I mean, nobody you right. even fathom doing that today, right? I mean, they'll never, his records in that, in that space will never be touched. Uh, you know, even his own peers uh, in the coaching profession uh, deemed him a couple of years ago the greatest coach of all time. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I, I had the distinct honor, I, opportunity, I was, I was interviewing Coach Wooden over a, a mentoring relationship he had uh, with with, a, with an NBA player, and as I was watching that happen, I asked him a question. I said, Coach, you know, how many people, I mean, what, what does it take to become mentored by somebody like John Wooden? And you're, you're just so extraordinary, right? And he looked at me and he said, you ask. Mm. And I said, how many people ask? And he said, not as many as you might think. And so the real takeaway for me was to realize that you know that if you want to be mentored by somebody, great mentors, those people that whose whose thought process might be valuable to your growth, they're not out handing out business cards right. on the street, right? They're 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 doing what they do, and if you want to learn from them, you have to ask. 
And uh, and so Coach Wooden, um, uh, a month later, I called him and I said, Coach, I felt like I was supposed to ask. <laughs> and he said, I wonder what took you so long. <laughs> and so for the next 12 years, uh, I flew out to California every other month to spend a day with John Wooden, learning with John Wooden, and uh, and that mentoring relationship, uh, you know, shaped my, shaped much of who I would become uh, as a man. It's really really powerful. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think most people know John Wooden is an extraordinary number one coach of all time, just a phenomenal, phenomenal coach. But what made him a great coach is that he truly was a great man. So what were some of the lessons that he as an individual, as a guy, taught you about marriage or life or things that actually matter? Well, I would, I'll tell you, so one of the first things that happened is that, uh, I mean, I'll give you two real quick ones, uh, two quick ones. When you know, Coach Wood's wife died 25, 25 years ahead of him. Um, he, he lived to be 99 and a half. <laughs> and so she died, you know, in her uh, mid-70s. And so he lived the last 25 years without the woman, the only woman he'd ever kissed. But she died on the 21st day of the month, and every month for the last 25 years of his life, John Wooden got up on the, on the 21st day, and he wrote his wife a love letter. He wrote her this beautiful letter. I mean, he would write a new letter every month. He would take last month's, he would take it and place it on her side of the bed. He'd take last month's letter, and he would put it in a box, and there were boxes of these letters in his house. It was beautiful. And I'll never forget, I was with him, I don't know how many years ago, I guess it would have been six years ago, six years ago, six, seven years ago, uh, and it was in the October time frame, and uh, and I I was there on the 21st day. Mm-hmm. And so my time with him was delayed while he wrote this letter to his wife. And we get done, he gets done, takes it, places it where he, where he always does, and he comes back, and I said, Coach, and I've always wondered, is there anything in those letters? You've written scores of them. Are there anything in those letters that you wished you'd said to her when she was alive? And he said, all of it. <laughs> I wish I'd said all of it. And it was so awesome. Like, I realized right then, you know, he, he missed, he loved her so passionately, but he missed the opportunity to tell her things he wished he had. And so uh, that year, I came home, and uh, and that year for Christmas, uh, I gave my wife a box with 52 envelopes in it, one for every Friday for her to open up uh, with something in each envelope, with a, with a letter in each envelope about something I loved about her. <laughs> and and I did it because I realized, you know, John Wynn was right. You know, I mean, I, the last thing I'd want is for her to, to pass and then start writing letters. That'd be horrible, right? Right. I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it, like he said, do it while she's alive. And... Uh, and it became such a big part of our relationship. Every Friday, she would call me wherever I was, and and, and tell me what was in that week's letter. You know what I had what I had written about, and gave us something to talk about. Don, when I when I speak, I near the end of my presentation always invite the audience to write down one key takeaway. And my reminder to them is if they hear and identify, write, commit to, and take action on one thing, they win. And so do their spouses or partners or employees or customers or whatever. And uh, if you listen to a podcast with that same mindset, my friends now tuning in in their cars or on their way to work or at their homes while they're wiping their tears right now, uh, I just wrote this down. It's going to be my commitment. My takeaway is to write a little brief love letter to my gorgeous bride, Beth, once a week. It's not that hard. It's an opportunity to share our heart, our love, our passion 
our story with someone that ought to hear it all. Well, and you know where it grew from there, John, was that, uh, you know, that became such an important thing that by the, by the next year I, I gave her another box, right. two more letters. And, and just last week she, ordered, she opened letter number 340 or whatever it was. <laughs> and I've got on my computer a list of, uh, of the next hundred that I'm going to write for her because I know what, what's happened is I've begun looking for things I love for her, love about her. Right. right. You know, too often in relationships we're busy looking for things we don't, you know, with things that drive us crazy. Mm. You, know, you, you put the toilet paper on wrong or whatever it is. And, right. and in this particular case, I, I, we flipped that script and I'm looking for things I love. And it changes the, uh, it changes the way uh, I think, talk, and, and relate to her. And the beautiful thing is, and the way she relates back with you. So that, that's uh, an added benefit. The third book, before we get into the most recent one you've written, that I just loved, and I loved not only the book, but again, the subject matter, Devoted. Tell, uh, tell our listeners, Don, uh, a bit about your book, Devoted. It's a story of Dick and Rick Hoyt, the, uh, the father-son team that run triathlons together. Uh, Dick is a, uh, uh, his, his son was born a spastic quadriplegic, and uh, and Dick um, ultimately uh, started. His son came home from a basketball game in high school one day with a with a letter on his lap, and it, the letter was from the school about another young man in a nearby town who had who had been injured in an accident, and the and the community was going to run a race five miles to raise money for this other little boy. And and Rick Hoyt typed a note to his dad. Rick Hoyt doesn't speak. He uses a little a machine that sits on his, the back of his wheelchair, and he typed a letter to his dad, we should run in the race, mm-hmm. because I want him to know that being paralyzed is not the end of his life. And Dick Hoyt hadn't run a mile in forever, but he went out and pushed his son five miles in a race. And the son types out at the end of it, Dad, while we were running, it felt like my paralysis was gone. And and the son realized, and the father realized, you know what, I need to do more of this. i got to yes. do more of this. And he goes out and he buys running shoes, and Starts a whole new starts a whole new uh, uh, relationship where he starts running with his son, and at the end of the day, they've now run in 34 Boston marathons. They've done incredible things uh, you know, together as a pair, and it's you know, uh, and, and and I read I saw a YouTube video about them and read a story, and my son had just been born, and I, I wrote him a letter and I said I, I wrote him a note and said I would love to come. I'd love to come sit down with you. I'd love to know what it means to love somebody as much as you do, your son. Um, and he invited me to do that. And, and after spending a few days with him, I wanted more. And the more I spent with him, the more I wanted to help him. And so we did a book together about a father's love for his son. And it came out on Father's Day three, year, three or four years ago. So, What have you learned about being an extraordinary father from that extraordinary father? I think the thing I've I've learned was that you know, uh, like Dick Hoyt, I mean there are just, there are lots of things my son likes to do that I don't like. You know, I I, I hate video games. <laughs> I, hate, I don't I don't like. I mean, you know, it may sound sacrilegious, but I, I don't like Star Wars. Right? I mean, there are things that I don't. Yeah, like. we'll have to cut that after uh, in the post production. <laughs> but he loves some of these things, and to stay engaged with him, I have to. So. You know, Dick Hoyt didn't want to run, right? You know, he didn't run, but he did, and it changed the... So we have to listen for those things, those opportunities, those places to bond and connect that may not be naturally, may, may not be natural for us. Mm. 
um, I think that was one of the things. That's probably my, one of my great takeaways. These these books keep leading you to the next opportunity, the next opportunity, and I believe most recently you wrote a book called Great Teams, which again is a phenomenal work. I, I'm <laughs> amazed that the well never never runs dry, Don. So t- tell uh, tell our listeners if they've not yet checked out this book, wh- why you wrote it in the first place, and what it's about. Sure. I, so I was speaking for uh, Microsoft um, a few years ago, five years ago, and uh, one of the executives there. Uh, hires me pretty regularly. He said, you know, we love talking, as you do, about individual high performance. What can we learn from the, the Walter Paytons and the John Woodens of the world? But we want to know, how do some teams stay together? Why do some teams do what others don't? And um, and he said, I'd love it if you'd study great teams for us. And so I took it on. And I went and I sat down with 110 of the best team builders in America, you know, everybody from you know, right there in your hometown, Tony LaRusso and Bill DeWitt sat down to share with me how you build a sustainably winning organization uh, to the San Antonio Spurs and the, the Duke Blue Devils and the women's soccer team at North Carolina. And all of these great winners just started sharing with me, here's how you, here's how you build the culture that allows your team to be excellent uh, in good times and bad, uh, you know, when you've got talent and when you don't. And, um, uh, and, and so it became this amazing project. And uh, uh, Thomas Nelson, you know, reached out to the publishing house and saw me talking about it and asked if I would tell it as a book. And it's a, I think it's it's one I'm very very excited about. What what are some of the key takeaways from that book when you're building a great team, whether that's a sport team, a great family, a great organization? Well, the first one is that the great teams are understand are, are purpose centered, right? They understand who they're in service of and they understand why what they do matters. Right? How do you build? If you can create purpose as a centerpiece of your organization, if you can, if you can articulate to your team why you matter, why your company matters to your community, to your to, to those that you're in service of, if you can articulate that and you can put a face on it, like here's who we matter to, you can actually create a different dynamic with your with your employees, with your team, because they can they people. Uh, you know, a, a why that that why that sense of why, you know, is is it's always human and it's always an act of service. And if we can, if we can be in connected a connection to the humans who we are serving, we are we are just playing better as a team. From from all of the lessons that you learned in 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 writing that book and doing the interviews and meeting the folks and and learning from them, what was your primary takeaway? What, what what's your main lesson? Your main takeaway from that book? Well, there's just there's it's been funny because there's been so many of them I, in my teams that I run here uh, in my office. I mean, they all laugh about how they've seen all of these things as I've gone out and learned them from people. I come back yeah. and the first place I try them are right here, right? Um, you know, you, the great teams run better huddles than their opponents, right? They run more effective meetings, and so how do you run an effective meeting? Well, there are a bunch of principles that you can apply from great teams that you can run to your meetings, and we do them now at ours, right? They start on time and they end on time. You know, every great meeting has, an, has, has there's yes. a reason for it, and the right people are there. So it's it, there's some really great tactical discussion points in this book, as well as some big, hairy thought points mm-hmm. like creating purpose, and, and um, it's been fun. You know, the book is so worthy. We're going to have a link to it in the show notes. I want people to check out Great Teams. Outstanding read. Yeah, I mentioned to you earlier, John, I'd love to offer to anybody on on this listening here 
uh, a free chapter, an opening chapter of the book, and uh, this concept of about purpose. I, I, it's it, it's theirs if they'd like it. No doubt about it. It's phenomenal. It's a standalone book in and of itself. So if you stop there, I think you're going to get a lot of value. But that's right, brother. I I think they're going to be excited and hungry and thirsty to learn more. So we'll have the link to that on in the show notes so people can check on that afterwards. I'd like to take us from your story, your work, the individuals and the teams that you've covered into this section now that we call the Live Inspired 7. So... All of our guests come on. They get to share a little bit of their life story. I think everybody's got a story. It's frequently, though, not the story they're telling the world. So after unpacking their story, Don Yeager, we then ask them seven probing questions, some of them a little bit random, some pretty thought-provoking, some completely out of the blue, but here we go. All right. No hedging, man. We're going to go right into it. Don Yeager, what's the best book you've ever read? Uh <laughs> Am I allowed to say the Bible? Uh, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, I think I would start there. I, but I, I would also tell you, I mean, again, um, I don't read a lot of fiction. Right. Uh, but Nicholas Sparks uh, did a book called The Notebook that I have read over and over again. My, my mother um, suffered Alzheimer's, and just the, just the power of his, his wordsmithing um, mm-hmm. reminded, reminds me often about how, how important and how great some gifted wordsmiths are. And, um, and, I, and I learned a lot from reading it. Don, tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you, brother, with millions. What would you do with it? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure it would be some charitable endeavor. I, I wouldn't stop working, that's for sure. The one thing, I, I, I've, I've found my space. And so it wouldn't be, uh, I wouldn't buy an island and move away. I would... Uh, I'm sure there would be some some neat charitable. I, I'm I'm on the national board of Make a Wish, mm-hmm. and I'm sure there would be a lot of wishes granted as a result. <laughs> Don, your house catches fire, and all the living things and all the living people are already out. But you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, just one thing. What would you grab? It's a picture of my wife and I from our wedding day. That uh, the outside. Part of the frame was was signed with inspirational things from all the people who were there at our wedding. I would keep. I would. I would. I, I look at that often. Mm. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, Don, who would it be? I'd want one more conversation with John Wooden. Mm. And you had dec- a decade and a half almost of conversations. What what went unasked that you would love to learn just a little bit more about? I I, I would love to uh, you know again I don't know that there's a particular question I would love to. I just loved being in his presence. I mean I I'll never forget. I I mean I, I, I one day looked at him. I never knew. I mean, he was ninety eight ninety nine. You know when he died ninety nine when I last saw him and so he's ninety eight and. Uh, about a year before he died, and I, I wasn't sure if it was the last time I'd see him. And I got up and I looked at him and I said, you know, Coach, every time I leave you, I feel like I'm a better man than when I arrived. Mm. And now, you know, most people you say that to you say that to me or you. Most of us would say, Oh, shucks, thank you. That's that's probably undeserved, but thank you. John Wooden just looked at me and he said, Don, I hope you make that your standard. <laughs> he wanted me to make other people leave me feeling better than when they arrived, and I thought, "Wow, how to how to how to how to reverse that and 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 put this really amazing 
you know, uh, curse on me, right? Yeah, thanks a lot, yeah. Coach. Right, way to go. But I, you know what? I love it. I'm, I'm all for it. I am, too. I think it's a great uh, challenge to take on. And uh, three questions left, Mr. Yeager. Here we go. Number one, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, you will never outperform your inner circle from John Wooden. He said, you know what? If you want to be better, always be improving your inner circle. Just give me a little bit more depth on what that means. Well, it means that uh, Coach Wooden used to say, and in fact, so he, he actually challenged me. He said, you know, I really think if you want to understand how important your inner circle is, he said, tomorrow when you come back for breakfast, I want you to have listed the five people you spend the most time with in your personal life, your professional life, and then in some random space, whether it's in a church or you know Kiwanis or whatever. Tell me who you spend your time with, and then look at the list and ask yourself, are these people going where I'm going? Do they want for me what I want for me? And if they don't, you need to scratch them from the list and, and find a new five. And his challenge was, you will never, and he used to say, you will never outperform your inner circle. So those people who are around you, if 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 they're if they're negative, if they're difficult, if they're if, if they, uh, you will never you're gonna that's mm-hmm. what you will become. You will never outperform them. So surround yourself by excellence, and and that's what you'll become. Don, you uh, you certainly have done that. But what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Uh, slow down. <laughs> slow down. I wanted everything way too fast for way too long. The final question, Mr. Yeager. It's been said that all great people, all great individuals, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? Um, how about, he inspired others... He inspired, he inspired many by telling the story of others. Wow. Don Yeager inspired many by telling the story of others, and we were fortunate to spend this time with him and you, Don. We're grateful for it this time. Uh, but gosh, the volumes of work that you've helped create has touched lives around the world, including mine. Man, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your heart, and I'm certainly grateful for your work. Buddy, I thank you. My friends, for this time and until next time, this is Live Inspired with John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired. Well, thank you for joining me this time on the Live Inspired podcast. Now, listen, I kind of hate to say I told you so, but it's true again. I did tell you so. Don brought some heat. He shared some amazing examples. He's got an amazing life story to share, and that's exactly what he offered on the Live Inspired podcast. Don't miss the link to the free chapter in Don's most recent book, Great Teams. Stay connected to Don and live inspired with me every day at johnolearyinspires.com. I'll spell it out for you. John, J-O-H-N, O'Leary, O-L-E-A-R-Y, inspires, I-N-S-P-I-R-E-S.com. Now, my friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, please do take a couple moments and rate this show and review this podcast. This is a quick way that helps get the word out. Although the show is still just launching, it's already climbing the charts and it's definitely touching lives. You can help us inspire and impact even more. So rate the show, leave your comments, tell your friends. Let's create a movement of individuals who choose to live inspired. For this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired.